Print on Audio, the podcast for writers and all who are interested in books, literature and the printed word. Write on Audio interviews, inspiring you to write by sharing the experience of prominent authors. My name is Tiffany Clare and you're listening to Write on Audio. today is with writer and journalist Patrice Lawrence. Born to Italian and Trinidadian parents, Patrice was born and grew up in Brighton. Her work has included writing acclaimed and prize-winning books for children and young adults, with her novel Eight Pieces of Silver winning the inaugural Jalak Prize for children and young adults books in 2021. The interviewer is Vizana Hakim. So tell me, um, Patrice, I'm interested to know why you decided to write about young adults and children who live in East London. Uh, There's a kind of long and a short answer. The short answer was I was living in East London (laughs) and it was actually um, listed. Well, I suppose I'll give you the the long answer, really. I mean, I was born in, um, in Sussex and brought up in Sussex until my late 20s and then moved to London as a mature student at Goldsmiths to do English and, and History of Art. So I've grown, grown up um, and my first four years I was in a private, privately fostered with a white working class family in, in Brighton. So most of my life has been spent amongst white people and white communities. Um, and my mum was born and brought up in Trinidad under colonial rule. So all the books that she read were the so-called classics. So, I mean, up until my 30s, you know, and also suppose on top of that, the other thing is, is that when I went back to live with my mum when I was four, my mum was a massive reader. So the way we kind of bonded was through stories. So she read, you know, the, you know, the so-called classics, you know, The Secret Garden and The Water Babies and all of those. And so all the books I read growing up were by white authors, usually dead white authors, <laughs> um, writing under colonial times I mean I still love some of those books but I think what I absorbed up until you know up until my 30s over and over again is that people like me don't write books and people like me aren't in books unless they're hideous stereotypes um so I love writing but I always 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 wrote white characters because I just absorbed that to such a degree that kind of internalized racism that we aren't in books yeah um I wrote Orange Boy by accident, um, mostly because I didn't know that young adults was a category. <laughs> I'd read some, you know, books by Patrick Ness and, and other writers, um, but it just didn't occur to me that was, I, I thought I was writing a crime book with a 16-year-old character, yeah. uh, main character. And I was living in Hackney um, and I lived there for sort of 23 years, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I My daughter was went to sort of school there and virtually she went to a sort of girls school just in, in Lower Clapton so all the girls there were majority girls were uh, black and brown girls so a lot of Muslim girls as well so she had a really wide friendship group so you know for me it's just like recalibrating and just thinking actually what do I really care about and I had worked for a little while as um, an advocate for an organization in Stratford that worked with uh, black and Asian parents going through social services so by the time I'd worked, you know, I was writing Orange Boy, I'd worked in a voluntary sector for about 20 years. And I really had that passion for, for social justice. So for me, and I, I think it was also a sense I wanted to reclaim London. 
And I'm really sick to the teeth of this version of London that would be like Richard Curtis films where everybody's white apart from a black guy pushing a brooms in Notting Hill Market. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like oh, friends where people like you and me don't exist, you know, and that's not the London I know. Yeah. So I was really passionate about bringing in like the London that I know. And yeah. I also, I'm from a working class background. You know, my stepdad yeah. was a kitchen porter. You know, my mum was an, a, a nurse. Uh, my foster mum was a toilet attendant. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wanted to bring back working class so I hate the way the, work, the way working class people have been um are demonized to some degree you know so there's something we're passionate about just pushing against stereotypes I think yeah. we can do that as writers and a lot of characters in your some of your stories are from foster uh, foster um uh background so that's uh, I I see where that connection is coming from now so that's really brave well, no, I've not, not really. I think part of one of the jobs I had, um, I worked for Family Rights Group, which is based in Asheron Street in Dalston before it got a bit so sheesh. Okay. <laughs> and um, it was working, that job was working with, uh, it was a sort of more policy organisation, but it did a lot of work with families who were going through social services, so a lot of policy work, lots of training okay. with social workers. But um I also did some work where interviewing kinship carers, so grandparents okay. and sisters who were looking after Excellent. children, and also in another job, uh, care experience children themselves. And I, again, I think it's one of those things about, you know, stereotypes about care yeah. experience children. Yeah. And also, um, I've said before in other interviews that, you know, I'm, I'm quite an angry writer. Yeah. And I'm really angry about social injustice and I'm angry about the lack of money and support that go to care experienced children yeah. in the system. So yeah. again, we can use our words to try and so um when I wrote Sweethearts of Wilfred Lane that's my story I used my own authentic voice so I was writing about growing up in East London um I was born here and have an East have been an East Londoner ever since so I know the slang I know the lingo yet I had to do more research as the words um, are forever, as words are forever evolving. And what I used to say as a youngster isn't a cool thing anymore. So I had to re-educate and research my language to make the language in the story more contemporary. I'm 44. Uh, what I said when I was 16 is not with the current times. <laughs> I understand, um, like you said, you're originally from Brighton. And so tell me, how did you adapt to the culture of the language of, say, Hackney in Orange, Orange Boy? Um, I mean, part of it was language at her, part of it wasn't because sometimes it's just trying to get the rhythms of the voice yeah. but my daughter's dad was born and brought up in in Hackney okay. um so we had this very different <laughs> life and my daughter's dad's white working class grew up in Hackney where you know so that's school if you were from the you know in a state the teachers just presumed you couldn't do anything you know mm-hmm. whereas I kind of grew up black in a school of about 1700 kids about 10 of us weren't white um, but I was sort of relatively academic and, and sort of did quite well. But I think I just, maybe it's because I've grown up in, you know, I'm the first of my family to be born in the UK. So my mum was born in Trinidad, my, my stepdad in Italy. So I've always known that language can be used in different ways and can be quite creative. And even though it's an English speaking household, it still is. I mean, Angelo was, he came um, when he was 19 to avoid doing national service in Italy for two years. <laughs> And um, he but he came and it's quite interesting how they both ended up in Sussex because there's a, a massive psychiatric hospital that used to be like one of these old Victorian asylums, okay. like masses of land. It was actually quite progressive. 
and local people didn't want to work there. So all the people in um, all the sort of people from overseas in Sussex tended to work in the hospital. So lots of Irish, lots of Asians, Guyanese, Zimbabwe, Italian, Spanish. The Italians tended to do more the sort of manual type jobs and the cleaning. And quite a lot of the Italians had already married in Italy before coming over. But Angela was like 19 and handsome. And he, was like, <laughs> so he actually went to night school to learn English. So he, he sort of is a very strong Italian accent, as I've noticed more as I spoke to him on so recently. But it, but it means that language, you know, that language can be quite a flexible thing in the families where a language is, is used differently. And then Martin, my, my daughter's dad, used to just come up with words like, I've never heard that word before in my life. So I'd be interested. So I just got really, and that's one of the joys in London. You know, you can sit on a bus and listen to the different ways that people yeah. use language. Yeah. And yeah. I absolutely yeah. love it. So some of it is, you know, words that were of, you know, of that time. And I'd listen and I'd ask my daughter and ask other people. But sometimes it's just trying to get a rhythm and then in your own little thing there. It's that mix, isn't it? I think. Yeah. yeah. Great. So in literature and storytelling in general, um, our themes make or break uh, a novel, but I believe in the freedom of the writer and I give myself certain liberties to write about things which happen in my culture, which certainly are not talk spoken about um, so openly, like forced marriages, interracial relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, honour-based violence, you know, taboo subjects. Um, you have done... Um, uh, the same in your books um, so Orange Boy it started off quite heavily and in the first few pages there's quite graphic references to drug use and there is a death um, so after my book was published I was told off by family members for writing a love story with a sex scene and for using bad words like the f word <laughs> so did you face any obstacles like that? Um not really, I think, but for two reasons. One is when I wrote Orange Boy, I had no expectation of being published. So mm. literally, I mean, I already, I already had an agent, but I was lucky enough to get an agent before it was so difficult to get an agent. How people do it now, I really do not know. It's like, you had to write this whole polished book. Why in my case, like working full time and bringing it up. How do you do that? How do you do that? Um, so I wrote it because I went on a crime writing course because I just thought I couldn't write for children and young adults. And I wrote, started writing the first, chapter from a prompt that was just like this crime writing course and then just literally free wrote lots of it um and I eventually it, it, I had no idea that that was in my mind and I thought I was actually writing an adult crime book with a 16 year old mm. protagonist so which actually was quite liberating mm. except one of the one of my fellow writers said you might need to have to use some of the f words because they might not like it. <laughs> but I think be on a bus going to be happening but okay <laughs> um but I think I think the other thing is I've never been really been part of a black community so growing up in Sussex, obviously not. Um, I mean, the only other black person would use my mum and some of the other nurses. Mm. And then in London, I think I was a little bit of an alien because I think just everything in my life is very different. I think my mum and my stepdad are just even different from their own community, you know, their own communities. Okay. So, you know, we've never had that, you know, black Sunday church experience that a lot of people in London have. You know, my mum and Angela were both uh, baptised as, as uh, Catholics, but are both atheists. So I've never had those, you know, so... I think I've been a bit of a, you know, a lot of the things I've been, again, like passionate about and um, things that I don't want to ignore in communities. Do you know what I mean? It's that same thing. So I've never really particularly fitted in. So when I was working actually in Stratford in the sort of um, sort of mid 90s is with, with one of the Black African heritage um, advocate and one South Asian heritage advocate. And they had a real sense of who they were and their identities. 
and they just thought I was like this weird anomaly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just got no cultural references whatsoever. <laughs> I liked Bruce Springsteen. It's like what? Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think it's it's that, and I think even still, you know, years later, later. But then you know, Alex Wheatle has done very similar things. I think I'm lucky in the sense that I've been standing on the shoulders of people who have done that as well. Subscribing to Write On Audio is easy and will mean that you'll be notified the moment new editions are released. Many podcast apps will deliver new editions directly to your feed. In your favourite podcast app, search for Write On Audio and then look for a button or link that says subscribe. If you're listening on Spotify, you need to choose follow to subscribe, just as you would for a musician or band. We'll print more details in the show notes for this podcast, where you will also find links to our contributors and to the online version of Write On magazine. So I know you are a role model to many young people and you do wonderful work with them. Can you tell us how you work with young adults and children? And if you believe giving them a voice, using words and literacy is effective and the way forward. I think there's two different ways to do it. One is, is in a sense in the books that you write. And the amount of times I've had young people, and I, when I do sort of workshops or talks at schools, I talk very openly about my life because I think I feel very conscious about, um, I don't want to sort of monetize other people's distress. So I talk yeah. about parents in prison because my biological dad was in prison for a month for something quite simple for like forging a check. But yeah. because he was a nurse, that meant he couldn't work anymore, which meant that he lost his house, his flat. That meant that he... Uh, became homeless and and an alcoholic and died when he was in his mid forties, and so I talk a lot about that. I talk about that and how that 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 stigma, and I talk also about the grief of hearing when he died and about how difficult it is sometimes to express grief and how um, particularly if your you know relatives has died in those quite stigmatizing circumstances. You know, my mum didn't want to know. Most of my friends hadn't gone through bereavement. So I was in my very early twenties at the time. Um, so I put that in books. I know there are other young people have done that. Other young people have gone to the care system and talked to me. I have a little pat on the back. So I'm like, Patrice, I've been in foster care. Or Patrice, my dad's in prison, you know. Um, and the book that's just coming out for Barrington Stoke Needle. Okay. And Barrington Stoke are an amazing publisher based in Edinburgh. And they're tiny. They've only got one editor. And they publish books that are dyslexia friendly. Um and they, I mean, they pay, you know, tiny advances, but it's such an honour to, to, to be able to work with them. Because also what they say to you is, like, she's write a book. And I say, there's no other thing. It's just, you've got, no, it's just great. You're not being sort of, you know, pushed into any particular channel. So I've written one for them that was called Toad Attack, which was just for younger readers. What happens if your you're, you're sort of village is taken over by a swarm of flying toads? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and one of the main characters in that Rosa was deaf because I, I used to work at Spread the Word in um, in Deptford and Alia is deaf so I thought Alia I need to have a deaf character you know because there's not been many deaf children in, in books mm. um, and then I wrote one called Rats that was with um, Oxford University Press and Barrington Stoke for reluctant readers about a boy whose mum's in prison and he's got pet rats and then Needle, I started writing because I was part of um, a advisory group for the Howard League for penal reform. And they were looking at the overrepresentation of black people in the criminal justice system. So everybody else in the advisory group, there's a barrister and an activist and a solicitor. And then there's me, the writer. <laughs> yeah. But it's because Laura 
who was at the legal director at the time of um, Howard Leave, knows absolutely understood the power of words, mm. that actually the solicitors can go off and do the stuff around and look courts, but if we're going to get the stories out, then a reality of it. And so Needle was, and one of the things that they talked about was remorse and about how you need to play the game in a, in a, in a system and say you're sorry, even if you're not, and, you know. So I've got a girl called Charlene who's care experience and she's knitting, it's called Needle, she's knitting, um, she's a really fantastic knitter okay. and she's knitting a blanket for her younger sister who she's not seen since her mum died, so younger sister lives with her dad and her foster mum's brother unravels it. Oh. So she sort of stabs him in, but in just in a web of his hand with a knitting needle, but everything escalates and she um. sort of ends up. And one of the things actually, again, that's, they talked about, which is obviously has come up with Child Q, is about how black girls are often um, not seen as children and as adults so we kind of looked that, that's in that book as well about how we'll see this like 14 year old girl and just treat her as an adult and not as, as a child so that's one of the ways the other way when I do workshops with young people part of it is talking very much about my background and just saying you know that I never thought I could be a writer I never thought I'd be that person whose mum goes into water stones and goes that's my daughter <laughs> it just was not you know people might have said do you want to be a strawberry Patrice because that was more likely I'd turn into a strawberry than be a writer it just did not occur to me it's just not a possibility um and I think you know part of things that I can do is to say to young people you can that the writing that you do at school to pass your exams is not creative writing I don't care about your spelling that's what technology is there for <laughs> We don't speak grammatically correctly. So your characters don't have to. You have brilliant imaginations. You can create your own stories, whether you do it as a mainly as a picture with a little bit of text underneath, because that's how your mind thinks, whether your your story is like a poem made up of just different words, you know. You you can write, you can do it. And so part of it is trying to give that power back to young people to say, exams are one thing. And that really breaks and it breaks your heart when they say, oh, yeah, I did try and write, but I'm not very good at it. You are, you are. It's just school takes your voice away from you. I think I think most writers tend to be outsider in, in some ways, and maybe that's why people write to try and, in a sense, one part it is therapy, one part it is anger, sometimes it's grief, sometimes it is trying to work out who you are through, through your characters. I think you're not complacent, and I think one of the things is that you question everything, so I yeah. think for me, I'm still very much, you know, the, the child that would say, why, why, why? I just don't, you know, even very simple things, you know, that I don't. So I'm, I I have my mum's surname because my parents split up before I was born. They weren't married, which again, that was a massive stigma in, in the sort of 60s. You know, my daughter has my surname. So I just said to her dad, can she have my surname? I said, yeah, all right then. Um, he's got his mum's surname because his dad is. So we've got, you know, we pass our surnames down the matriarchal line. So because that's kind of just a sort of given thing, I'm still like, so why did everybody have their dad's surname? Why do we, you know, it's for me, it's just that everything is this question about why do we do things that way? I, I don't really get it. And sometimes you feel like you're sort of kind of slightly isolated because you're asking all these questions. Everybody else seems to get it and you don't, <laughs> I think. But I, but I think for me, the writing is where I, I, I kind of pour all that because, yes, you're right. And I think once I come to London again, that was interesting. I just thought I would be, in some ways, I'm more invisible, obviously, but also still very much an outsider because I just didn't get people's points of reference whatsoever mm. because mm. the experience of growing up black in, in London, I think, obviously, in the 80s, was very different from my experience of growing up in Sussex. I think it was probably much harder, much harder in London than I had it, you know, in, in Sussex. Um, and even things, but then you, as a writer, you can play with that. So even things like uh, traditional Caribbean food. My mum 
was the second youngest of 12. And she was the only one who came to the UK. And she said, you couldn't even get garlic, let alone anything else in Sussex at that point. So, but then she sort of had to eat like, that food in a nursing home in Sussex and started to learn to cook. And her sisters used to like send over like a big dutchy pot, you know, cooking pot and a yeah. tower, which is kind of a, like a, a sort of steel flat grill pan. So she came like roti and parata and, and sort of dal puri. Um, but the person actually who makes the best sort of dal puri and in the, was my daughter's dad, who's like white and grew up in Hackney. We learned from Guyanese neighbor. I mean, sort of, if you don't know Delphi Madeline, it's kind of, um, it's like a roti, sort of, but you've got a spiced yellow um, uh, split peas inside, and then you roll it flat, and then you sort of cook it on a sort of the tower. And um, and if you do it right, it's great. Martin could do it right. I tried it once, so it was like cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's always been that playing with identity in our family, which I, as I'm an adult, I, I've I kind of really feel really honoured that I've had that because it's really helped me, turn, which is, again, why I write multi-ethnic families. That's all I've ever lived in. I've never lived in a family where we're all the same colour. Um, food has always been really important in our family, but it's always been different types of food because of different types same of heritage. Yeah. 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 My mum cooks excellent Italian food because we could get Italian ingredients before we got Angelo. Can't mm. cook Italian food, but he used to work in... Um, as a, a kitchen assistant in hotels. She does great 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I was going to end um, the interview with this. Um, can you, but I think you've already touched on these, some of your struggles, if you faced any, or was it a smooth journey towards publication? And um, please, can you give some tips for a writer with a great idea and a great book, but sadly unrepresented in the big um, world of image fitting and personality selling rather than actual words? Uh, I think part of it is about timing. And literally, that's why I tell the story about Orange Boy. Literally, it's pure luck. And it was nothing to do with the quality. I mean, Orange Boy was published when I was 49 and I've been trying. So, but I think for me, I write because I actually love writing. Yeah. And whether I get published or not, you know, I didn't think Orange Boy was going to get published. I'd started on something else. But for me, because I think if I relied on a sort of being published, I would just been so angry and upset. But for me, just I loved it and the fact that I could do it and you know I'd written several books before that that actually my agent said but just good enough to even say to a publisher <laughs> today with that but I think what's interesting is I think for me it's like finding now I've kind of got a platform so one of the books that uh, hang on I'm <laughs> just gonna get this one I mean scattered around so what happens is once you get a choice so this one is a picture book called Our Story Starts in Africa and it comes out in, in October and it's published by uh, Magic Cat who are based in actually based near Cambridge uh, Heath and what um, Emma the editor who'd acquired my YYA is, is, is freelance and she does lots of things and one of the things is she approached me to say because she'd worked a little bit with Magic Hat who because sometimes almost like they commission writers almost like not quite as book packages but can write you know and it's quite high-end stuff and they get illustrators but she said they wanted to do a story about the history of Africa mm. for three to five years um, from when Africa had its you know, East African empires and whatever through to 
currently you know, in South Africa, they've got this ma- massive telescope, but taking into account the scramble for Africa and you know enslavement for three to five year olds. Wow. <laughs> Hold my tea, I will. <laughs> but because I was working with Emma, it's amazing. So we're both real nerds, and so we both went off and we listened to podcasts and TV programs, and we knew we had to sort of condense it all down to. But that actually the knowledge and also kind of thing about realizing how little I knew. But I've spoken again a little bit about in schools, about some of the warrior queens and, you know, and um, so it feels that sometimes when your time comes, you're more ready for it if it's a bit later. I think if I was younger and it's taken, you know, that stuff on identity, it's taken me a really long time to find myself and who I am. Mm. And I didn't write writers of colour, uh, write characters of colour until my mid-30s mm-hmm. when I saw um, Mallory uh, Blackman's um, Picard Boy on TV and it's like, it's a black family. <laughs> And it's not about gangs. It's not about crime. <laughs> and it's not the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So, and that kind of gave me this sort of almost like permission. And then when I was also going to have my daughter, uh, trying to find picture books that look like our family. And uh, you could be like, Mitch Chase family, I'm that rare in like, East London. Could you find any books? Like, no. <laughs> so it kind of gave me that momentum and that permission to do the things that, that I wanted to. For me, like, nothing is wasted. It's all the stuff that hasn't got published. I rework it, I rethink it, I take the characters uh, from it, it's ready if it, if it needs to go. I think there are, you know, even from five years ago, that the landscape is a, is a little bit different. There, particularly in YA and Children's, there's may, many more, um, particularly South Asian writers and Muslim writers. So um, um, so the Jalak the, you know, the Jalak Prize has, um, you know, it's the second year this year, we're doing specific children, young people as well. And there's like a, a Muslim writer um, on the middle grade for that. And mm. another one uh, uh, who's done a graphic novel called Roles We Play that I think is on the shortlist for, yeah, it's the shortlist came out today for that. So there's actually more visibility. And once you get more visibility, you get more people around you. So I'm in a little sort of um, group with some other UK black writers, but mostly we moan about how publishers just want to buy like a US black writers and talk about police brutality and racism. It's <laughs> 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 tiring sometimes. <laughs> um, so it seems to be, and I just think publishing, even if they won't admit it, do you see us as trends? Mm. And it's waiting for the trend to come around again and then just making the absolute most of it, you know, really. That's why I write so many books. Thank you to Patrice Lawrence for taking the time to be interviewed for Write On. You can read more of this interview in the print and online edition of Write On. Thank you for listening to Write On Audio, presented by me, Tiffany Clare. Write on Audio is produced by Chris Gregory and it's an alternative stories production for pen to print.